Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Galatians, the sixth chapter. I'm having separation anxiety. I'm feeling it already. We're about through with the book of Galatians, and it's just been an unbelievably important to my life for many, many years, but it's like I'd never read it before, actually. And I've read it over 40 times and studied it many, many more times than that. But today we find ourselves in the last verse of chapter 5, and we're going to read through verse 10 of chapter 6. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow along in whatever version of the Bible you have with you. Verse 26 of chapter 5, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another." For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In 1790, the Baptist Church at Buckinghamshire, England, having studied this passage of Scripture, made a covenant with each other. It was written out. And all the members pledged by signing that they would seek to fulfill what they had read and learned from this passage that we're looking at today. Let me read what they promised. They promised to walk in love toward those with whom we stand connected in the bonds of Christian fellowship. As the effect of this, we will pray much for one another as we have opportunity We who are in more comfortable situations in life than some of those brothers with regard to the good things of providence will administer as we have ability and see occasion to their necessities. We will bear one another's burdens, sympathize with the afflicted in body and mind, so far as we know their case under their trials, and as we see occasion, advise, caution, and encourage one another. We will watch over one another for good. We will studiously avoid giving or taking offenses. Thus, we will make it our study to fulfill the law of Christ. 1790. The Word of God is true regardless of when it's studied, when it's applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. Last week, we began specifically asking the question, what can we do to obey verse 10, where the Scripture says, 
while we still have opportunity, let us keep on doing good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of the faith. And we saw two things last week found in verses 1, 2, and 5. The first of which is that we are to restore a brother or sister who has fallen off the pathway of following Christ in the power of the Spirit. We who are spiritual are to restore such ones in a spirit of gentleness so that they can no longer carry out the desires of the flesh. And we know what the word flesh means in the Bible. It doesn't have to do with that stuff which covers our bones and our muscles. It rather has to do with our unsurrendered selves. It has to do with my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at how we are to bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, we will fulfill the law of Christ. Today we're going to look at some other ways from this passage that we can do good to one another in the name of Christ. The first of which is that we are to consider one another better than ourselves. This is not stated explicitly in this passage, but you'll see as we look at verses 26 and then 2 and 3 of chapter 6 that these words yield that piece of information. And they echo, quite frankly, other things which the Apostle Paul has written that we still have record of. For instance, in the book of Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Put pride of place in others rather than yourself. Outdo one another in honoring one another. In other words, put others before yourself. Consider them better than yourselves. And this is phenomenal in its impact upon a body of believers. If we grasp this, and more than simply grasp it with our minds, but we live it out in our lives, it will revolutionize this body of believers. Because we will be people who truly understand what the Apostle Paul teaches in this passage of Scripture. Now, there's some things which prohibit us or inhibit us from doing that. And one is mentioned in verse 26 of chapter 5. Take a look at it with me. Let us not become boastful. The word which is translated boastful is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2.3, quoted earlier, which is translated by the NIV as vain conceit. The word means empty thinking, empty conceit. It's the idea of a false impression of oneself. And it's the idea of our pride rising up in us and making us believe we are better than someone else in or outside of the body of Christ as far as that is concerned. And this boasting shows up two ways. It shows up in our challenging one another. The word translated challenging one another is a word which simply means to call out. It's the idea of throwing down, as we who are males are apt to do. It's an expression of testosterone many times. It's quite frankly, an expression of our flesh. We challenge others whom we think we are better than. We have superior feelings over other people. And that is what this word 
means. Challenging one another to a contest. Get in your mind a scene from a National Geographic special. Two stags coming against each other, fighting each other for supremacy within that region where they are, and they become the leaders of all the does in the land. Or two male wolves coming against each other to try to establish which one is going to be the alpha dog or the alpha wolf in that situation. That's the idea. A week ago last night, Conor McGregor took on a man who was an afterthought. Actually, his name, I believe, is Nate Diaz in UFC 196. And prior to that, McGregor, well known for his boasting, had basically said, it's going to be a slam dunk for me. He's a pretty good guy, but he doesn't have what I have. He's no match for me. Well, two rounds into the fighting in the octagon found Conor McGregor saying, Uncle, he lost. He threw down, didn't he? He declared how much better he was, not only better than this, but better than anybody who might dare to take him on in the octagon in mixed martial arts. In fact, he is on record of having said, this just shows how arrogant this man is, he is so boastful that he said, if I had the opportunity to fight Floyd Mayweather, do you know who Floyd Mayweather is? He's not an MMA guy. He's a real boxer. And he has won 11 titles, 11 titles. He recently retired, I'm told, from professional boxing. But he said, if he came into the octagon with me, he wouldn't last 30 seconds. Would you think that's a little bit on the boastful side? Saying I'm superior? That's what this word's about. And this idea would not be contained in God's word if it were not possible for you and me to boast in this manner about how we are so much better than others in the body of Christ. Remember the false teachers, these Judaizers who said, in order for you to really be a Christian, it's not enough just to place your faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ. You must be circumcised. They were saying, hey, I'm throwing down. I'm challenging you. I'm better than you. We're better than you. We of the circumcision are better than you who are not of the circumcision. They were throwing down. Here's another way, though, that this boastfulness emerges. By envying one another. In envying one another, you may never have thought of that as pride, but it really is boastful in an interesting way. It's seen when a person who feels inferior to other people needs to talk badly about those that he or she feels inferior to. And they don't ever say anything bad to their faces, by the way, but they say a lot behind their backs because they feel that they're inferior. Do you know what happens when a person is walking by the Spirit and not in the flesh? When a person understands that he or she is totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit for living the Christian life, this person can look at anybody who might be considered superior in the church or outside the church to him or her and say, I can serve you. 
not because I'm intimidated by you. I can serve you because I see Christ in you and I want to serve you. I want to serve you through love. And then a person who might otherwise envy say, I don't envy you. I don't resent you because I know Christ died for you and I can serve you. And I have within me the Christ who died for you and who died for me. And He wants to minister to you through me. This allows us. It's so encouraging when I think about it. This allows me and it allows you to consider others better than ourselves. Isn't that neat that we can do that? Do you know how we get over this boasting deal? Hold your place here and go to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul writes in Romans 12, 3, For through the grace given to me, notice the operative word, grace, the phrase given to me. Through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. This is where you and I must begin. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We're to have a sane estimate of ourselves is the way the NIV translates this passage of Scripture. And that's a good interpretation. I remember reading about the winningest coach in NFL history, Don Shula. He won 347 games. That's amazing. You may recall, if you're a professional football historian, that on two attempts, his team, the Miami Dolphins, made it to the Super Bowl but failed. But on the third attempt in 1972, the entire season they went undefeated. They were perfect in their record. And then they went through the playoffs and won the Super Bowl. He became an instant hero. He was already highly respected, but his cred went up very high in the eyes of America. It was so bad that he and his family of seven, his wife Dorothy, their two sons and three daughters, they could not go out to a place that was public without being swarmed by people. And so Dorothy and Don Shula decided that they would take their family to a secluded place in the backwoods of Maine, a beautiful lake. There was only one magnificent, you could say cabin, it was more like a mansion on that lake. And they could go there and they could have the run of the lake and the run of the area. They went there, but even in those days, in the early 70s, it's easy for teenagers to get bored, if not adults. And after several days there, they decided, hey, we're getting cabin fever. We need to get out of here and go to town. The only problem was the town didn't even have a stoplight, but they went anyway. They picked up some groceries, and they were looking about for some opportunity for entertainment. And there was a little movie theater there. So they said, let's go in. They noticed that there was a film that was to be shown in a few minutes. So they got out of their car, all seven of them. They went in, and they walked in. And as they walked down the aisle, the entire group of people there began to erupt in applause. And Don Shula leaned over to his wife, Dorothy, and said, can you believe it? They know me all the way up here. They sat down, and one of the men there came over to Don Shula, extended his hand, and said, thank you. And he said back to this man who thanked him, he said, you must be a Dolphins fan. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. The manager of the movie house said, if we didn't have ten people here within the next 15 minutes, we're not going to see the movie. 
Don Shula had a higher estimate of himself than he should have had, right? And by the way, the way we know the story is Don Shula told the story. He learned a lesson, didn't he, in that situation? So we must have a sane estimate of ourselves that we are people who, if it were not for God's grace, would be nothing. We are something in the eyes of God, but in our own power, in our own fleshliness, we are nothing. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The word translated deceives is only used here in the entire Bible. It's what the scholars call a hapax legomena, a fancy word of saying once used and only once used in the entire Bible. And this word is a word which means to fill one's mind with fantasies about oneself. Do you ever daydream? And do you ever have dreams when you sleep? I have never had a dream either when I was awake or asleep, that I was not the center of attention. How about you? That's interesting. Very telling, isn't it? The center of attention. Well, the person in question who thinks he's something when he's nothing is a person who fills his head with all these notions about how grand he is. Taken to its extreme, it's an expression of mental health issues to the max. But this passage would indicate we need to be sure we know who we are. We are, in essence, nothing in and of ourselves. Of course, in Christ, the whole world belongs to us, is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4. And in 1 Corinthians 3, rather, and in 1 Corinthians 3 earlier, he actually says, what is Paul? What is Paulus? What is Cephas? We are nothing. He even said that about himself and about his colleagues in ministry. We're really nothing if it were not for Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at verse 4. Let us keep on examining our own work. And the word translated examine is a word which was used to describe the testing of metals, M-E-T-A-L-S, to see if they were actually pure pieces of metal. And with that kind of Carefulness, we are to keep on examining not one another's work. This is what we do. We size one another up. Can he do something I do as well as I do it? And we kind of size each other up. And in so doing, we short-circuit the possibility of our considering others better than ourselves. Now think about your own ministry. Think about how the Lord uses you. Some of you think, ministry, I don't have any ministry. I'm not a pastor or whatever. But remember, the Bible says that we're all priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says we are a royal priesthood, not any ordinary priesthood. And the Bible is clear later in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we all have gifts which are for serving the body of Christ and bringing glory to God. You are in the ministry whether you know it. If you know Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has come to indwell you. He has given you a gift or gifts. Think about others who have gifts like yours. And how do you feel about them? Do you compare yourself with them? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, you're a fool 
I'm a fool when I compare myself with another believer. It's foolishness to do such things. He goes on to say, after having said, let us keep on examining our own work, and then that person will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Isn't it true that our boasting largely is about how we're better than other people? Or to help us kind of convey that idea into our own minds, at least. We deceive ourselves. So we need not to compare ourselves with one another. So here's number three in this listing. Let's start with number one. Let us do good to one another by what? By restoring a wayward brother or sister in Christ in a spirit of gentleness. Number two, we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to pray for each other. We're to speak words of encouragement from the Word of God to each other. We're to do practical things on the lines of feeding or cleaning or helping other ways. You know, there's some people who in our church are not able to do some of the things that we take for granted. Look around, get to know people, see how we can bear their burdens and ministering to them. And the third thing, which we just spent several minutes considering, is let us understand we are to put other people before ourselves. We're to think of them more highly than we think of ourselves. Let's look at number four. It has to do with sharing all good things with one another. And it's very specific. It has to do with the relationship between a pastor-teacher and the church that he is given the responsibility of overseeing. Look at verse 6. And let the one who is taught, let me stop there with that word taught. The word translated is taught is a word, listen carefully, katakueo. Some of you who are from a liturgical background, either Roman Catholic or Anglican, Episcopal, in some cases Methodist or Presbyterian, disciples of Christ, you went through catechism. You were catechized. You were catechumen. Well, this word is the mother word of that. Let the one who is taught what? The word. It's the word logos. It's the whole word of God. The responsibility of a teacher who is a pastor teacher in a church is to teach the whole counsel of God. Remember, Paul described his ministry among the Ephesians in this way. In chapter 20 of Acts, he said, I did not shy away from teaching the whole counsel of God to you. I taught it all. Now, he spent a lot of time in Ephesus, by the way, six hours a day for three years. Can you imagine? It was a teacher's paradise to have that kind of opportunity. And he took full advantage of it for the glory of God and for the benefit of those who came to listen. And the Bible says the word of God spread throughout all of Asia. Not just in Ephesus, which was a thoroughfare for commerce, but the entire region of what we now know is Turkey because of his teaching the Word of God. Now hold your place here and turn with me to the book of First Timothy. A few books toward the back of your Bible. It's Paul's letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, who himself was a teacher in the Ephesian church. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Timothy. Until I come, keep on giving attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. 
Three things he was to give attention to. They're very clear. Reading the Scripture publicly, because people didn't have access to a Bible like you and I. Some of them couldn't even read. They didn't have access to the language. They depended upon their ability to hear, to exhortation, and to teaching. And look what he says in verse 14. Stop, literally is what the text says, stop neglecting the spiritual gift within you. Evidently, he had become discouraged or got caught up in some other kinds of responsibilities as the leader of the church, the pastor-teacher of the church. He had neglected his spiritual gift, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. One or more of those elders who laid hands on him when he was, in effect, ordained as the head pastor of this congregation, there had been prophetic words which had been pronounced over him. And for whatever reason, probably discouragement, because there was a lot of opposition to him, he had let that slide in his memory and in his practice. Now look at verse 15. This is particularly special to me in terms of the convicting nature of it. Keep on taking pains with these things. Now, a few of us in here are pastor teachers. The question we have to ask ourselves, are you taking pains with the reading of the Scripture, exhortation, and the teaching of the Word? Are we, am I, this has been very convicting to me, am I giving the proper attention because I have a responsibility to God and to you to minister the Word of God when I minister to it in no slipshod fashion, but having given great pains in getting the Word to you. The delivery of the Word is one thing, but it's very much secondary to the study of the Word of God. Some people might think that I just stand up here and open the book and start going. I can count on one hand when I've done that in 39 years of pastor. One hand. Part of it's I'm just afraid I'll fall flat on my face if I do that. And that's a problem for me. That's not a good attitude to have. But bigger is the responsibility I have to do when it's my turn to teach the Word this way. Verse 16, play cope. Pay close attention. And here again, it's a present tense command. Keep on paying close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. In other words, I'm to spend time in the Word, and this is one of the benefits of doing what I do. If I give proper attention to the preparation of a message like this, the Spirit of God works me over many hours instead of the 45 minutes or so I teach the passage that I'm assigned for that day. He works me over, and it gives me opportunity to pay close attention to myself before I start teaching this to you. I mean, the Spirit of the Lord is working in my heart. I mentioned that to you when I was saying I was having separation anxiety. I don't want to leave Galatians because God's teaching me. He's exposing me in so many ways so I can get right with Him and be better used by Him. He concludes... The last part of verse 16. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Does that mean that if I teach the Word of God the way it's said I should teach it, 
that I'm going to be saved by that? That's not what it means. There's more than one aspect of salvation. Remember, justification, sanctification, that's what we're in now. If we know Jesus, we were justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, made right with God, no longer condemned for our sin because He was condemned for us. In the meanwhile, we're being set apart, sanctified. This is part of my sanctification because I'm paying attention, if I'm obeying this, to whom? To myself, to get right with God where I need to get right. So that when I stand in a place like this, I will not be hindered from telling the truth. The Spirit of God will give me what He wants you to have through the gifting that He has given me and by His Spirit. And then for your salvation, your sanctification, how are we sanctified? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So when someone like me stands in a place like this, if we have paid close attention to ourselves and to the teaching, the result will be that you will be changed if you're open to be changed by the word of God. And we need to understand this, we who are teachers. Now look at verse 17 of the next chapter. This is for you as members of the body, regarding us who are elders. 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Let me stop a moment. The word translated work hard, you might think, that's not hard work. You don't know what hard work is, Mike. Well, I probably don't. But I do know what work is necessary to rightly divide God's work. I know it's hard work. One reason it's hard is because the devil doesn't want you to do it. So you can just sort of get up and tell a few stories and make people feel nice and go home. Or not even be able to tell any stories. Just kind of fumble your way through a passage with no obvious message from the Lord from it. Work hard. This word translated work hard is a word that suggests toiling. And this is what the man who is worthy of double honor, who has the title of elder, is due double honor because he works hard at rightly dividing the word of truth. Doesn't just sort of skim around and get a bunch of ideas and string them together, but is a true student of the word and shares that. But look at the next thing. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And in saying that last part of verse 18, Paul quotes Jesus from Luke 10:7. If you were to go there, you would know these are the words of Jesus. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Now let's go back to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. I love the word share. You may not even have any idea what it means, but here's what it sounds like in the original language. It's kono, what? Kononia. But it's the verb form of kononia. And we don't usually think of fellowship. That's what the word is usually translated. This idea of partnership. So a pastor, teacher like myself, or any other pastor, teacher, we are in partnership with you. More importantly, we're in partnership with the Lord. And in partnership, we accomplish the mission God has given. Because God has given some to be 
pastor teachers in the body of Christ to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the body will be built up and become mature and like Jesus Christ. So this is so important. I cannot emphasize it enough. The importance of a relationship between a pastor teacher and the flock of God. We're a team and we work together. Now let me talk personally for just a moment. In the years that I have served as the pastor here in this church, you have fulfilled this responsibility beautifully in regard to me and the other pastors who serve here. You have shared all good things with us. You have taken seriously the responsibility and more than responsibility, the privilege that you have to contribute to our lives in a material way. I can't speak for the other men. I think I could. I think they would agree with what I'm about to say. We do what we do not for shameful gain, as Peter warns against when speaking to elders and pastors, not for the money. I now I don't think about the money. I'm grateful for what I receive. I receive far more than I need. Thank you for being responsive to the Lord in this way. But what I do understand is God has given you and me and the other pastors here a relationship that we share in fellowship with one another for the advancement of the kingdom of God, for the building up of the body of Christ as you are equipped by your pastors. Remember when we say our declaration of commitment to the church that I will be willing to be equipped by my pastors. It's our job to equip and it's our calling to do that and we will give an answer for what we have done for that. I will and the other pastors will do likewise. Sam Houston, do you know the name Sam Houston? If you're someone who grew up and you took Texas history in the 8th grade or 7th grade or whenever you did that, you know I didn't ever take Texas history, but I took Tennessee history in the seventh grade. And my teacher was Miss Ryland. I'll never forget her. She was a great lady. And I loved history. And one of the figures prominent in Tennessee history is Sam Houston. Before he became the governor of Texas, he was the governor of Tennessee, and he had some long, dark years in between out in the wilderness among the Indians in Arkansas. But he got saved late in life. He got saved in Texas. He was baptized by a Baptist pastor in the Brazos River. And after he got baptized, he made this declaration to whoever the head deacon was in the church that he became a part of. He said, I want to pay half the pastor's salary. And then he was asked, why, Sam, would you want to pay half of our pastor's salary. He said, when I got baptized, my pocketbook got baptized too. I like that. That was cute. Well, let's go on and read the rest of this passage. This is a rich passage. Verse 7 says, Stop being deceived. God is not mocked. There's a different word used here for deceived than was used in verse 3, but it's still a strong word. Stop being deceived. God is not mocked. The word translated mocked comes from the Greek word, which means nose. And the idea is turning up your nose to God. These people who are, as we're going to see, sowing to the flesh rather than sowing to the Spirit, treat God with contempt. They turn their noses up to God in 
relationship to what he says is important. God says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. They were saying circumcision is everything. They ignored the word of God. They were mocking him. And they were, in a sense, some of the translators say, this word also conveys the idea of outwitting God. They were fooling God. They were pulling the wool over God's eyes. How ridiculous to think that anyone could do such a thing. Stop being deceived. God is not easily fooled. In fact, it's impossible to fool God. He goes on to say, For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote, as you probably know, Treasure Island, said this, Everybody, sooner or later, will sit down to a banquet of consequences. Everybody. We all will. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. If we're in Christ, we won't stand before the great white throne judgment where the sheep and the goats will be separated out. We'll be there among the sheep, but then we'll go to be before the judgment seat of Christ. And there'll be an evaluation of our lives based on the quality of the work which we did. Did we do our work by the Spirit? Or did we do it by the flesh? It's going to be a good day for all of us who know Jesus when Jesus comes back. But there's going to be a little pain associated with it for all of us when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ because there's going to be a lot of what we did that will be exposed as being self-motivated for self-glory. It's going to be that part's going to be tough for all of us because we've all done these things for ourselves. But we need to know what the Bible says about this. In other places, Job 4.8 says... The person who plows iniquity and sows trouble will reap the same. If I sow sin and I sow trouble, I'm going to reap it. And not in the way in which I sowed it. Hosea says, if you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Maybe my sin was just a little zephyr, just a gentle breeze. But you know what it's going to be in terms of the consequences of my sin? It's going to be like a hurricane. This is the thing about sowing to the flesh. We sow a little bit. It seems so incidental and really not all that big. And then before you know it, it becomes a firestorm in our lives. God knows and He forgives, but it doesn't remove the consequences in this life, the trouble which follows. The Bible is full of examples of that kind of thinking. I like what Adrian Rogers says. He says... You can't sow your wild oats and at the same time pray for crop failure. If we're sowing wild oats, it's going to bear some bad fruit. The law of the harvest has to do with the kind of seed which is sown. There are two kinds you and I can sow, good or bad. There are two soils in which we can sow it, the flesh or the spirit. And we are people who need to understand that there are two outcomes, corruption or eternal life. We must be careful when we think about these things. If I were to take some seed in my hand, and I'm not familiar with what kind of seed it is, and I'm hoping I'll get wheat, and it turns out 
to be barley and I sow it in a field, am I going to get wheat? No matter how much I want wheat, I'm not going to get wheat. Why? Because I'm sowing the wrong kind of seed. This whole matter of the law of the harvest has to do with the quantity that I sow too. Will I get a bumper crop if I just am sparing in my sowing? The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians 9 6, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Well, if I'm only sowing sparingly, I cannot expect to get a bumper crop. And then the quality of the seed has something, if not a lot, to do with the crop. If I have inferior seed, then I'm going to get a poor crop. So what God has called you and me to do is be careful regarding what kind of seed we sow. Look at verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. Now let's stop here just a moment. What would that look like, sowing to the flesh? Well, it would be doing what I want to do without regard for what God would have me to do. It would be living my life as a renegade as far as God is concerned. It would be adopting this attitude. I'm free in Christ. I can just do whatever I want to do. That kind of attitude will result in a life that ends up in corruption. The word translated corruption is a word which doesn't mean destruction. It means slow burn, slow corruption. Moment by moment, there's corruption taking place in our lives if we sow to the flesh rather than sowing to the Spirit. It would be my sitting hours before some kind of screen, whether it was a screen on a computer or a television screen or a movie screen, and indulging my eyes and my flesh with what I see there. It would be my resorting to anger to resolve conflict in a marriage instead of asking the Spirit of God to take control of me and to give me the fruit of the Spirit, including self-control, that I wouldn't just break out and erupt in an outburst of anger, which is an expression of the flesh, a deed of the flesh. It would be my falling in love with money, ignoring what God says, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many people have fallen into a place of great pain. It's self-inflicted pain when they have adopted a life of homage, worship of the false god of money. Those are examples of sowing to the flesh. The last part says, But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, what would that look like? It would look like a life that's depending upon the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has taught us how to walk by faith and not by sight. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. I put myself in a position to hear the Word of God, and having heard it, I apply it to my life. So, let's take these four things that we have learned from this passage regarding what we can do to do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of the faith. What's the first one? I can see a brother or sister who's out there spiritually, dangerously running away from God. And I can take the time and the effort and go and, with another brother or sister, bring that person back into a walk with the Lord. I can bear your burden 
And in so doing, I'm sowing to the Spirit. I can also consider you better than myself, and in what I'm doing that, I'm sowing to the Spirit. And then if I'm in a fellowship like ours, I can sow to the Spirit by being a good steward of the gifts and the time God has given me to teach the Word of God and pay close attention to myself and to my teaching so that by that I will be sanctified and you would be sanctified too. Those are ways. But let me say this. Your presence here today, most of you at least, is an expression of sowing to the Spirit. You could be doing a lot more things right now than you're doing right now. It's a beautiful day. Oh, my goodness. You could be doing a lot of fun things today besides being here to worship the Lord. But your presence here, you're sowing to the Spirit by being here today. What you do what you have, with what you have learned or experienced or heard from the Lord, when you leave here today, if you put that to work and you meditate on it, you think about it, that's sowing to the Spirit. When you pick your Bible up and read, not to fulfill some sort of religious obligation, you're sowing to the Spirit. When you pray, not just for yourself, but for other people, you're sowing to the Spirit. Do you get the notion? Do you get the idea? When you're fellowshipping with one another in a small group and you're sharpening one another, you're sowing to the Spirit. You're encouraging one another. You're sowing to the Spirit. And the list goes on and on. And what does the Word say? You will reap eternal life. And the idea of eternal life in our minds is primarily life after death, which is awesome, and that's forever. Very important. But it's also any life that's created by the Spirit. I love what Jesus says about the Spirit of God. In John 6:63, He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. He's the one who gives us life. And that life is an abundant life. If we contrast... The deeds of the flesh. Have you sown to the flesh lately? Can you remember some time in the last few days you sowed to the flesh? I remember one time that I remember. And it was not a trespass that caught me off guard. I I thought about it before I did it. But I went ahead and sowed to the flesh. And immediately I knew I'd done wrong and I confessed it and repented of it. But I still had this crummy feeling. And that was not because I hadn't been forgiven It's because there is a consequence which comes when I sow to the flesh. Now, when I'm walking in the Spirit, whoa, I don't have to worry whether I've lied to somebody or not, because I haven't. You know, people who lie, what do they do? They have to have a lot of stories to cover up their lies, right? And man, they're working that in, in their minds a lot, and they don't sleep at night. But when you're walking in the Spirit, you're walking in the truth, aren't you? And the truth will set you free. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So I recommend we walk in the Spirit. It's not I, but it's the Lord who recommends that. Let's look at verse 9. And let us not lose heart in doing good. The Apostle Paul was acquainted with the temptation to lose heart. He was on the precipice of losing heart when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Listen carefully. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Do you think he was about to lose heart? He was. So it's not unspiritual to find yourself in such a situation. It's what we do when we're faced with that kind of situation that determines the outcome of our lives in that era of our lives. And the Scripture goes on to say, 
For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Some of your translations say, if we do not give up. In due time we shall reap a harvest, a good one, from the Spirit, our eternal life, if we do not grow weary. Let me give you a few suggestions. Remembering that Jesus got tired. Didn't he get tired? We see examples of it in Scripture. His apostles got tired. On one particularly busy day, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Do you think it's unspiritual to go aside and rest? Absolutely not. Why would God build into the Ten Commandments, Six days you shall work, and what about the seventh? You're to rest. So rest is something God gives us to replenish us. It's time to slow down and relate to Him more significantly and get re-energized. So if you're getting close to burnout, in Exodus 18.18, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, came and observed what Moses was doing. And Moses opened up his counseling ministry at dawn and closed it at dusk. And people were around him all day. And as Jethro looked at this, he said, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out as well as your people. And the word translated wear out in the Hebrew is a word which was used to describe burnt leaves on a tree in the desert. We have knowledge of what that looks like. And so what he's saying is, you're going to burn out, Moses. And he gave him an idea. He gave him this idea. Share the work. Share the work. Don't do all the work. Young pastors, particularly, have this need to be appreciated. And so they try to do everything. I mean, they try to call everybody who calls. I can fix your problem. Just come on in. And they're there from dark 30 till... 8 o'clock at night, and they're worn out. When they get home, they have nothing left for their wife. If they have children, nothing left for their children. And it's not long before they burn out. Do you know that the church in America loses literally thousands of pastors every year? Do you know why? Some of it has to do with immorality, but probably the immorality was made more accessible to them because of their fatigue. In certain circles, there is an acronym for people who are in recovery, HALT, to remind ourselves when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, T, we are more susceptible to sin. Isn't that true? So get rest. Share your work. And then here's another one. This probably should have been at the head of the list. Believe God, what He says, and claim His promises. Like we read from Isaiah forty twenty nine, He gives strength, His strength to the weary. God has unlimited strength. The way that you and I survive this life to which we've been called and actually thrive and bear fruit that brings glory to God is that we trust God. We know His Word. We spend time. We claim His promises. We stand on His promises. And we are able to go forward. This is the thing that keeps us from melting down, burning out, whatever term you might wish to use. 
Let's go back to verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Well, there's so many stories I could tell, but uh, we're about done here today about this. Let me give you an example of this. There was a missionary who was assigned to a leprosarium. And you know that's where lepers are. They're isolated because of their condition. And he went to the leprosarium. And when he walked in, it was horrifying, really, to look at. The disfigurement of the faces and the hands and the feet of these victims of leprosy. But there was one figure which stood out. When he walked in, he saw this man. And the man's face just radiated despite the ugliness of it. And he said to himself, I bet that guy knows Jesus. So he made a beeline to that man and said, Do you know Jesus Christ? And the man said, Yes, I do, with a big smile on his face. And the missionary said, How did you come to know Jesus? And he began to tell the story of his stay at the leprosarium. He said, When I came here, I was the most bitter, hateful person in this place. And the first day I came here, a man from the nearby village came to me and he gave me some food and I immediately threw it back in his face. He came the next day. He did the same thing. I responded as I had the first day. And this went on for a long time. And then he began to bring a deck of playing cards to do something interactive with me. And when he gave me the cards... To deal, I just threw them. This is where 52 pickup came from, by the way. (laughs) And then he said, that went on for a long time. Until one day I said to him, why do you keep on coming here? Why do you continue to be kind to me? And the man said, because of Jesus Christ. It's the love of Jesus that calls me to come here. I'm compelled by Christ to do that. And then that day, that man gave his heart to Jesus. What a wonderful story. The missionary was warmed. And as he was turning to leave, he caught himself and he came back. I have one more question. Would you mind telling me how long this man came before you received Jesus? And he said, he came every day for 13 years. Aren't you glad that man didn't give up? Too soon. Have you ever done anything like that? Anything for anybody like that for 13 years to try to win them to Christ? Wow, powerful, powerful. Now the last verse says, "While we have opportunity, and realize we're not here indefinitely. When God gives me an opportunity and you an opportunity, we need to seize it, not run from it. While we still have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of faith. Why is it important that we're this way with each other?" Because the most powerful witness we have as a church is the way we treat each other. If we serve one another through love, by bearing one another's burdens, going and retrieving someone from the jaws of temptation or sin, going and ministering to people by letting them know we think they're special beyond us, we care for them, being in fellowship, that's the best witness, John 17, 20 and 21, for your information. would yell that. But I want to finish with this quick story that's recent. It happened just this last week in my life. The week before last, I called a young lady who's never been to our church, but I had a contact with her. 
and was sensing the Spirit of God was wanting me to make contact with her. I called her and asked if she and her husband would like to join me for lunch. And she said yes. And so they joined me for lunch. In the course of conversation, I asked her to tell me about yourself. She said, I grew up here in El Paso in a home that was anti-religious. People who had religion, whether they were Christians or Catholics or whatever, they were mocked routinely and looked down upon as inferior intellectually by my family. We didn't need anything. That's the way my twin sister and I were raised. We didn't need anything. We were self-sufficient. And she said, about two years ago, when I was working as a waitress in a West Side establishment, a family began to come in. And this family was different than any family I'd ever served. They were so loving toward each other. And they expressed love to me. They were kind to me. They wanted to know about me. And then a little later, after they continued to come as a family on a monthly basis, then the two teenagers, 14 and 16, would come in almost weekly. And we had great friendship. We became people who were on a first-name basis. And then the family left town. The father was transferred in his work. But before they left... They gave me this Bible. She had a Bible in her purse. She took it out. Isn't it beautiful? I said, it is beautiful. She said, it's even got my name on it. And then she said, they wrote a nice thing in front of it. And she let me read what they wrote. And basically it was, read the book of John and you will understand why we love you the way we love you. And she said, you know, I never have really done that until about three or four days before you called and invited me and my husband to lunch, I had had this strong drawing to start reading the Bible again. You see, we're to do good to all men, not just to people who are in the household of the faith. That family, the Via family, they just went and ate and they loved on that young lady. They cared for her. The Spirit of God was in them, bearing witness to Jesus through them. And they don't even know about it, but I guarantee you they're the ones that God has used. And this young lady is on her way to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. It is exciting. If we look for opportunities, they abound all around you and all around me. There's no end to the possibility. We just to have to open our eyes and see people the way Christ sees them, in their potential for Him. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would take it and make us remember this truth and make it become a part of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.